Good morning, good morning, Rabotai. Breakfast on the class today is dedicated in loving memory of Celia Sutton Aliyah. Shalom Leunishmat Sila Batsara, sponsored by a granddaughter, Corey Ajmi. Uh, breakfast in the class also dedicated in loving memory of Howie Klaus. Leunishmat Chanina Bat Ben Osnat, sponsored by his friends. Breakfast in the class sponsored by Stephen Rapport in honor of Sammy Sutton. And as well, the week of Cobra was dedicated in loving memory of Sammy Sutton. Shalom. Leunishmat. Shalom Ben Rivka, sponsored by his son, Isaac Said. As well, breakfast in the class, dedicated in loving memory of Mr. Irving Safdie. Alava Shalom Leunishmat Ezra Ben Sarah, sponsored by his children. Um, our parasha begins with an obligation, a mitzvah, a commandment from HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Be'alotecha Tanerot, when you will raise the candles. It's a strange expression. It should say, Be'alotecha Tanerot, when you light the candles. And uh, Rashi famously quotes the Ma'amar Chazar. Rashi explains that a person has an obligation to light the candle, to keep the candle uh, held by the wicks of the, of the menorah, until the flame already goes up by itself. What does that mean? That means if you're lighting candles, you could just light like this, and the candle is already still kind of rising. The mitzvah is behalotecha to raise up the flame, to raise the candle. So you hold it there, until the flame of the wick is already kind of risen up. It's an extra split second, right, in lighting candles. doesn't take much long. From the time it catches until the time it's lit properly and it's risen uh, into a flame is what? An extra half a second? Uh, You should all know from your Hanukkah lighting uh, you know, capabilities. Uh, at the same time, the mitzvah of Baalotecha is given in that way. Our rabbis explain that this concept of Baalotecha Tenerot, when you light the candles, is something which is not only a mitzvah uh, in terms of the deed with regards to lighting the candles, but like we've said countless times throughout Sefer Vayikra, many of the ideas of the Mishkan, both in its construction and in the way it was run, were actually commandments um, that were meant to be metaphorical or allegoric in nature. So as an example, when we learned about the uh, measurements of the Aron versus the measurements of the Shulchan, we explained that the Khatam Sofer says that the half measures that you find in the, uh, in the Aron versus the full measures you find by the Shulchan, one is one ama, two amot, the other one is one and a half by two and a half, is to teach you that when it comes to matters of spirit, of ruchaniyut, a person should always feel like they're half full. There's a half midah, I only have half. I have more to accomplish. Whereas the shulchan, which represented wealth, there a person should feel that they have a whole midah. It's not like I have half, but actually I have, uh, I have the whole amount. Unfortunately, we know it actually goes the opposite. Like, we, like we're taught, oev kesef, person who loves money, lo yizba kesef, he'll never be full of money. He's never full. He always has a hunger for more. Okay? Uh, and that's just, it's not just someone who loves money. Um, the Gemara says something very different. The Gemara says, Yesh lo mane roze mataim. Mataim, if he has 200, arbamot, he wants 400. The expression of the Gemara is not, ohev mea roze mataim. You see, the Pasuk says, ohev kesef lo yizba kesef. That's telling you for a guy who loves money, it's never enough. But the Gemara says something much more ominous. 
יש לו מנה. Just having the 100 already causes a desire, an appetite for the second 100, for the second building, for the second uh, store. Uh, in and of itself, it generates this desire to have more. So when we're looking at the Mishkan, oftentimes, aside from the way HaKadosh Baruch Hu commanded you to build the Mishkan, He also commanded you to build something much bigger than the Mishkan, much longer lasting than the Mishkan. In the Nefesh HaChaim, uh, he explains that the words of the, of the Pasuk in Tirumah say, build me the Mishkan, v'chen ta'asu, and so you should do. That commandment is not about once upon a time, but v'chen ta'asu, meaning in every generation, every single person reading that Pasuk has an obligation to build the whole of the Mishkan. That means that I, in 2021, with no Beit HaMikdash, on a random Tuesday afternoon, I have an obligation of mitzvah to build a Beit HaMikdash. These ideas, they are not limited to the physical representation of the mitzvah, but really there's a much higher concept over and above. We use this idea to understand the machloket between Moshe Rabbeinu and the angels in heaven. Moshe goes up to heaven to take the Torah and the angels say to him, what do you, you know, you're going to take the Torah down to the world with all of the Tum'ah, with all of the inappropriate things. Leave it up here in heaven. Leave your glory up here in the heavens. Let us angels do the Torah. Moshe Rabbeinu famously answers, what are you talking about? The Torah says, you can't have jealousy one or the other. Do any of you have jealousy between each other? You know, it says, honor your father and your mother. Do any of you angels, do you have a father, you have a mother? Remember Egypt. Did you go down to Egypt to work there? All of these mitzvot, they're not relevant to you. So I'm supposed to take the Torah. The commentators ask, Moshe's answer, ace, fine. But what were the Malachim thinking? Didn't they know that it said you can't be jealous and that they didn't have jealousy? Didn't they know that it says honor your father and your mother and they didn't have a father or mother? And the answer is what I just, what I just shared with you from the Nefesh HaHayim. If the mitzvah of the Mishkan exists in its physical form in terms of building a Mishkan, i.e. a building, in terms of building the Mikdash, i.e. a Beit HaMikdash, but then our rabbis teach us that each of these mitzvot in their physical form, in terms of an Aron Kodesh, was also a mitzvah in, a, in terms of a spiritual uh, uh, approach, a spiritual mindset, the way a person's supposed to think, the way a person's supposed to act, the way a person's... That's what the angels were angling for. They said, it's true, we don't have the bottom level. But the angels correctly said to Moshe, most humans have the bottom level, but they don't have the top level. So how, why should we lose out of the Torah? Because we don't have the bottom level, but we have the top one, when humanity has the bottom one, doesn't have the top one. Now you understand, it's a real machloket. It's a good question. Who should win? You got the point? I'll give you an example. You have a father, he has two sons. Passes away. There's a fight now between the inheritors. One of his children is a very young kid. He's hungry. He wants to eat. 
He says, I should get the bakery because I love cookies. I'm six years old. I love donuts. Surely dad would have wanted me to have the bakery. His brother says, I'm 30 years old. I have a family. I don't care about your cookies. I need it because it's a business. It's a functioning business. It brings home a paycheck. Now we can understand that the court is looking at this situation and they're trying to figure out who actually is correct. That's what God says to Moshe. The angels asked you a good question. You said the opposite. Give them an answer back. Why should you take it over them? In the end, this, this stalemate between the angels and Moshe is resolved. I don't want to get into the resolution necessarily because that will take too much time. But you see that the Torah is operating in two completely different ways. The bakery is a place for this kid to walk in and get a cookie whenever he wants. But there's a much deeper function of the bakery where the bakery is a business and it provides sustenance, it provides clothing, it provides a house, tuition, you know, a car, all the things that a family might need. So there are different needs that are being met by the Torah, okay? If that is the case, we look back at this idea now and we look at Baalotecha where a person has an obligation to light the menorah and to keep the candle there until the Shalhevet is Oleme Eleha. Well, what did the menorah represent? What is the top tier understanding of what it means to light the menorah? Our rabbis explain that the lighting of the menorah is representative of the power of the intellect of the Torah. That's the concept. Okay? That is the idea of the menorah. So when we light the menorah in the Beit HaMikdash, that's why the light of the menorah of the Beit HaMikdash, we say that you have the, the windows of the Beit HaMikdash are counterintuitively built. Normally, the windows, there's meant to bring light in from the outside in. So the wider part is on the outside to bring the maximum amount of light into the place that's inside. The Beit HaMikdash had the windows built the other way around because the light of the world came from the Beit HaMikdash, not into the Beit HaMikdash, from the world. So the understanding of the menorah being the light, the understanding, the wisdom of Torah, is something that was represented by the lighting of the menorah in the, in the Beit HaMikdash. Now you understand also why the response to Yavan, to the time of the Greeks trying to extinguish the Jewish Torah way of life, the response to that is to light the candles. You try to extinguish it in the temple, we're going to institute lighting the menorah in every single Jewish window, in every single Jewish home across the whole world. Okay? So the light of the menorah represents the spreading of the wisdom of Torah. That's what it means when it says the Jewish people should be or lagoyim, a light unto the nations. We're supposed to spread the wisdom, the morals, the values, the ethics of Torah to a, uh, to a godless world. That's the concept that the Navi was charging the Jewish people with when he says that Jewish people should be or lagoyim, a light unto the nations. If that's the case, we begin to understand this concept of baha'alotecha, that when a person lights a candle, to hold the candle there long enough, I've spoken about this many times. Rabotai, a lot of people are scared to send their kids to yeshiva. They don't know what's going to happen. The kid goes to Israel. Who knows if he's going to become a black hat? 
he's going to spend time in Kolel Chas Shalom. He might wind up having a full Torah house, learning all day. Who knows? Barmenan, Lo Alenu Chas Shalom, right? Because there, there are really these are really horrible things that should happen to someone. People are very nervous about the outcome. Okay. However, and I love to stress this, your kid may have learned a lot in high school. Your kid may have learned a lot in yeshiva day school. But they did not learn Baha'alotecha. They were crammed with information. If I start off in any class of boys, by the way, or girls in modern communities, and I say, Everyone in the room goes, They know how to parrot back the first Mishnah in Berachot, because they learned it 74 times in every year of Gemara class. Open up a Gemara and ask them to read you a Gemara that they never learned. How many kids could read two lines? I had someone say to me, Rabbi, is this Talmud, is it in Hebrew? I said, no, that's generally not how the Talmud works. Not a Hebrew book. She's like, oh, I like the Hebrew one. I was like, you mean Yerushalmi? She says, no, the one that's written in Hebrew. I was like, you mean none? <laughs> there is no Talmud that was written in Hebrew. Even the Talmud Yerushalmi is written in a very difficult language. It's not something you really, really or readily understand. They need Nikudot. I need the vowels underneath. I need the English translation. Get me the art scroll one, you know? My friends, that's not Shalhevet Olame Elea. That's not a flame that is lit by itself. That's a flame that was lit by another. A class like this, even if you listen every day, it's great, it's amazing, best class ever in the history of the world. That's what my mother tells me. But, you know, it's not, it cannot be in the category of shalhevet ola me'eleha. It cannot be a flame that can sustain itself. Ultimately, if a wind comes, like this, on cue, knocking signs over, ultimately the flame is gonna, I'm not going to be able to resist it. Shalhevet ola me'eleha. Becoming self-sufficient in learning. Rabotai, I just want to share with you one thing though. A person who doesn't know how to learn, but they're sitting and listening to classes, it's great, excellent. A person who already knows how to learn by themselves, is capable of studying, excellent. The most dangerous level is the level in between. When a person thinks they know how to learn by themselves, but they actually don't. That's the guy that opens up the, the halakha book, decides halakha for him or herself, because I know how to learn, I understand how to read, I get it, I know, and actually they wind up doing all sorts of terrible things in their home, making all sorts of terrible mistakes. Someone asked me the other day, how come someone who eat, ate milk, someone who eats milk, is not allowed to be a Kohen? I said, what are you talking about? So they said, no, I read it in the, it's in the Pasuk in the Torah, Rabbi, you don't know the... They brought me the pasuk, it says, Ogiben. It's one of the disabilities. But the root, 
she thought it said it was from the root of gvina. So she thought a guy who's given who, who eats cheese can't. You understand? Coming up with your own halachot. I had someone once once tell me that, you know, the the laws of uh, of relationships between men are mutar because the Torah says mishkevei isha. So it's only the type of relationship that a person has with the isha that's asur between two men. I was like, could you show me your graduate degree where you became one of the tanaim? Where you are anshe knesset hagdola, that you're being doresh pesukim. The most dangerous thing in the world is not a person who doesn't know or a person who knows. It's a person who doesn't know that they don't yet know. Got it? Until the flame is able to exist on its own. When I became, went to, become, to get my simicha from my rabbi, my rabbi said something to me very important. He said, Shlomo, you know how simicha works. You study a portion of the Shulchan Aruch, you know, Ta'arovet. You could study Yisur Veheter. You could study the Hilchot Nida. You can study... You know, Melicha, Shechita, various sections of the Shukhan Aruch. And you can get Semicha, you can become ordained as a rabbi based on, though, on at least the basics of, uh, you know, of Nida, Basar Bechalav, Tarovet, right? These basic areas, arenas. But now you're a rabbi, you got a job in a synagogue. Now someone asks you halacha on something you're not ordained in. You didn't, you learned it, you read the Shukhan Aruch. You learned it, but you didn't learn it from a musmach, from someone who's a link in the chain that takes you all the way back. I have a document that traces back my rabbi-student relationship from me all the way back, generation through generation, directly to Moshe Rabbeinu. Rabbi to student, rabbi to student, rabbi to student, rabbi to student. That's a, lay, a, a, a chain link, if you will, of misorah. So there's elements that you didn't learn, you didn't study. In fact, in one of the, in the backs of the Gemara, there's a famous commentator, and his name is the Maharsha. And he writes in one of his uh, pirushim, one of the most prolific writers, he was an absolute genius, he was a tremendous, tremendous matmid. He would study until he couldn't study anymore. <coughs> they say about the Maharsha that he had a long piece of hair that he, uh, on his head, when nobody knew who he was, they all thought he was a, a you know, a, a, a drunk or in the back of the town. He'd be, they'd see him wandering around all hours of the day and night. Until one day they saw him, someone found him in the middle of the night. They saw a light in the window, they went to go check. He forgot to close the window shades, Yani. And they saw him with the Gemara. And this long piece of hair that he had wasn't for style. He tied it to a nail on the wall. So anytime his head would fall forward, he would yank his hair and he would wake up and he would continue studying. Okay, that's the Maharsha. And there's a piece in the Gemara in one of the Masechtot where he says, I'm ending my commentary now before the end of the, 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 uh, the Masechet. Why, he says? Because this part, I didn't, this part of the Gemara, I didn't study in Yeshiva. I studied this by myself. Now, I just want to put this out there. 
in any yeshiva that the Maharsha would have went to, who would have been the best guy in that yeshiva? Maharsha. Right? So imagine he went to whichever yeshiva. Who was he going to ask his questions to in the yeshiva? Himself. Right? Why was it necessary for him to be in yeshiva in order to study? And the answer is, because one of the memchet derachim, one of the 48 ways that the Torah is niknet bahem, you acquire Torah, is pilpul haverim, where you speak it over with someone, not who's bigger than you. Chaverim doesn't mean pilpul rabanim. It means that you studied it with someone else. You sharpened yourself. You asked questions. You learned on a higher level. Says the Maharsha, I didn't study this in the, in the framework of yeshiva. I can't, I can't write on it even. And we lost the uh, commentary of the Maharsha and the rest of that Masechet. My friends, sending your kids for a year to yeshiva in Israel is one of the biggest investments you can make in their future. And I want to tell you, the attrition rate of people who go off to yeshiva and become uh, rabbis for the rest of their life, it's not all that high. If you're worried that the kid's never gonna come back, make a deal with him, make a deal with the yeshiva, send your daughter for one year in seminary, I promise you, the best investment you'll ever make in your whole life. It will allow them to solidify their understandings, their Judaism, allow them to learn the halachot of setting up a Jewish home. If you think they learned it in school just because you spent thirty dollars or $40,000 in tuition in Yeshiva High School, thou art mistaken, so saith the Torah. And not only is it not true, not only did they not learn how to set up a Jewish home in school, even if the school taught it to them, there's a mindset that kids are in when they're in school how do they learn? They cram for a test. Go ask your kid what they learned last year. They can't tell you. More often than not. They cram before the exam. They shovel the information in to the short-term memory slot. An hour after the exam's over, rah, it's gone. What they do with information in school most often is similar to what we do when someone gives you a phone number. You say it to yourself six times. You remember long enough to dial it. Three minutes after you dialed it, you can't remember it. Right? Because your brain is not in the mindset thinking that there's information that I need to store. Rabbi when they're in yeshiva by themselves, alone, no one's on their case like they are over here. No one's saying, go, do this, go, be there, even though the yeshiva's doing it. But it's not their parents. It's a very different thing. There are yeshivot that will kick your kids out after two years. Send them there. Okay? Want to ask me questions about it? Message me online. I'll give you a list of places you can send. We'll make a contract if you want. <laughs> right? But it's very important. And today, you even have options not to send the kid to do this program at post high school. You can even send them in America. There are options even here to be able to do so. What a great gift, not only to your children, but to your grandchildren and to your great-grandchildren. But Rabotai, lighting a flame that does not go out is not only relevant to children and to people taking opportunities like this, it's relevant to each and every one of us. To finding a chavruta, to starting to study an hour a week by yourself without the English translation. I remember in yeshiva, I had to learn uh, we were learning, studying Gitin, and one of the chapters there 
is a nightmare chapter for a, for a young guy. It's the chapter of Misha Achzo. Misha Achzo Kurdaikus. The wildest chapter in the Gemara out of any Masechet. All the methods that they used to use to heal people and chop up a beetle into seven parts, let it hang out in the sun for three days, mix it with the water from a stream that has no frogs. Like, it's like wild stuff. Actually, the Chachamim explained that we're not supposed to follow, we're not supposed to use any of these um, uh, things in these days because the world's nature has changed and many of them won't work. And then if it doesn't work, you lose your faith in the in Gemara. So it says not to use any of them. But when you're studying it, you're supposed to still, Torah, you're supposed to learn it. Right? And every word is a word that you've never come across. You don't want to sit and learn with an English translation because then you cheat. And you don't work, you don't, there's no shalhevet or lemeelea. So what did me and my chavruta do? We had a sefer ha'aruch, right? Which brings different translations of the words in Aramaic into more intelligible Hebrew words. And we left it on the shelf in the library. And every time I stood up, every time we got into a word we didn't understand, we would get up, walk to the shelf, open the book, read the word in English, close the book, put it back in the shelf, walk back to the seat. All in order to be mekayim this pasuk. In order not to use a Gemara that had English, English translation. I'm not saying anyone who's listening to it here is on that level. We were sitting in yeshiva all day long. I was trying to sharpen, I knew where I was heading with my life. But at the very least, to try and learn in a way where you become more self-sufficient in your learning and in your understanding. Hashem should bless us to be able to raise the candle, the light of Torah in our children. Hashem should bless us to raise the light of Torah in ourselves. And Rabotai, Hashem should bless us to raise the light of Torah in all of Am Yisrael. Today there are people out there who don't know that they're Jewish. They know that they're Jewish by name. Their name is Goldberg. Their name is Cohen. Their name is Levy. They know that they're Jewish. They, they know that they're triggered by the Israel-Palestinian conversation. That's as much as they know about being Jewish. Rabotai, in London, and now as well over here, with what we are doing together with the synagogue in Chazak, is to try and reach out to people who have no connection to understanding the light and the wisdom of their Judaism and to make them people who not only understand a little bit about it, but actually are capable of lighting their own light, of standing on their own two feet, of building their own Jewish homes, of making Jewish decisions, who they want to marry, how they want to run businesses, what they want to represent when they walk in the street, etc., etc., etc. Light up the entire world, Rabotai. Start with yourself, then work with your family. But don't end there. It is individuals, ba'ale, batim, not only rabbis, lay leaders who step up to the plate and who help make it happen in terms of fundraising, in terms of connections, in terms of finding a space. Avram was always yelling at me, we need to do more. I know of a place, there's a restaurant to do a Shabbat dinner, right? He drives me crazy, Baruch Hashem in the most beautiful and the most holy way. The other day I went to someone, the guy said, Rabbi, I have a hotel. It's still COVID uh, you know, era. There's empty space there. Use it. Come over here. 
That's a person who's motivated, who's pushing to be able to light the light of Torah amongst the hearts and minds of the Jewish people all around the world. May God bless us to reach the day of Mashiach when we will see when the entire world is filled with the knowledge of God. Baruch Amen.